Welcome to Humans of Magic, the show that gets deep and personal with your favorite Magic the Gathering personalities. I'm your host, James Sue. We are here with the first inaugural episode of 2021, and I could not be more excited. We're heading into a new year. 2020 is firmly behind us, and I'm just excited to see what the future holds. Let me just kind of make this a life update. So there's a lot of stuff going on. Still working on Cardboard Live full-time. In fact, we've got an exciting new platform launch. You can now stream with us on Cardboard.live. And if you're interested in trying this out as a streamer or even just finding out more about it, definitely feel free to reach out to me. And uh, you can reach me at my email address, james at Cardboard.live. james at Cardboard.live. Or you can just tweet at me on Twitter, james underscore hsu. There's also the Cardboard Live Twitter account, Cardboard Live, one word. So those are the two ways or three ways to reach me if you include email. I would love to get feedback on Humans and Magic. Still have a ton of fun doing this show. This is, I think, year number five or year number four of this show. And I'm having a lot of fun. I've decided that 2021, I will still continue putting out new content, new episodes whenever I can. Things are getting a little bit busy with me going to school or back to school part-time in addition to the full-time startup stuff. And uh, I think one of the things that I'm going to have to do this year is play a lot less Magic. It sounds sad to say, but I played a lot of Magic Online in 2020 in addition to some paper events in China because China's uh, opened up again, I guess, in terms of the COVID stuff. And I think this year is just going to be harder. So I hope that I can spend more time building out Cardboard Live, more time podcasting, and more time raising my new cat. And I am looking forward to seeing what the future holds. Before we get started with Sam Ristic Studies for this episode, I just want to give a shout out to my man Kupla, whose music you always hear in the opening sequence of this podcast series. Kupla's latest album is called Lifeforms. Get Lifeforms wherever music is streamed or played or sold. That's Kupla, K-U-P-L-A. And Humans and Magic, the website, humansandmagic.com. If you want to catch previous episodes, you want to purchase the Humans and Magic book collection, you want to find out more, you want to join the mailing list, you want to reach out to me through that website, it's all there, humansandmagic.com. All right, preamble over. Let's get it on with Sam of Ristic Studies. Hello, hello, everybody. Today on Humans of Magic, the first episode of 2021, we are ringing in the new year with Sam from Ristic Studies, Sam, aka Ristic Studies. How are you, Sam? 
I am great, James. I'm so excited to be here to speak with you. Um, I could tell from the outline that you prepared that you're very intentional about your questions. And uh, there's a lot of good questions here. So I hope that I can do my best to respond well. Um, and yeah, it's already 2021. And um, a lot of us are <laughs> probably set our resolutions a lot lower than last year, given the state of the world. But um, regardless, I'm happy to be here and, and share some time with you. Whereabouts in the world are you today, Sam? So I'm in Austin, Texas. Um, I have been so happy the last two weeks here because we get 15 days of cold weather <laughs> and it actually snowed on Sunday. And uh, growing up a little bit in Colorado, I was sick of the snow and the cold. But now I, I thrive when we get, you know, two, three weeks of actual cold weather before it goes back to like 80 and humid until May. So um, so Austin is it's the best time of the year to be in the south of the USA. And um, yeah, I've just been thriving the last couple of weeks. And uh, based on what you said, you seem pretty much adjusted to life in Austin. So how long have you spent your time there? Yeah, so Austin is maybe my third home. I grew up in El Paso. And when I was 14, I moved to Colorado. Um, and I did high school and college there. And I lived a couple of years afterwards in various parts of the state. And then I moved to Austin like six years ago now, five and a half years ago now for grad school. Um, and I just love it. I mean, I, regardless of if I got into my grad program here, I just wanted to live here. And every year that I spend here, I just find myself, you know, thriving, like I keep saying, but, but it's definitely a, a new home for me and, um, very happy to live here. So I didn't grow up in the U S nor have I lived in the U S but I have visited Austin, Texas once. And, uh, this was many, many, many years ago. This is like 2011 or something way before covid i know austin's like very much known for the music scene as well as the tech scene so for someone who enjoys music i assume like before covid it was also like a really nice place to just sort of be out and about and enjoy what's going on locally right yeah big time um tech has now overthrown music as kind of the what austin is notorious for um similar to Seattle, what's going on in Seattle, where like there's 55 cranes downtown, you know, and people are joking that that's now the state bird is the crane, right? <laughs> it's the same thing happening in Austin. I saw it happen in Denver too. Um, tech, big techs moved in. Uh, Tesla's going to set up a factory here, et cetera, et cetera. But when I moved here early in 2015, um, there was this funny thing where like the big name bands um, that I grew up listening to as a kid they would be touring and they would go to Dallas and Houston and they wouldn't come to Austin because maybe there weren't, you know, venues big enough. But inversely, I was getting a lot of these super intimate shows with kind of the mid-range or, or low-range bands, if you will, you know, bands that don't have a huge following on Twitter and aren't super in, you know, involved in the industry. So I've seen so many of my favorite smaller groups here in the best kind of settings, usually with a lot of people that just love the band too. Mm -hmm. Um, so I feel lucky. I mean, that's one of the things we miss from COVID is going to live shows, but, um, yeah, I've seen a lot of really cool younger bands here in, in ideal settings, you know, ideal venues. And there's just so many across Austin. Obviously that's why they have South by Southwest here and, um, and ACL and such. But, um, the live music here is still primo. Once we can have it back, that's, that's on my list of things I'm doing, you know? Yeah. And I'm really curious now, like, why do you think the larger bands don't go through tech, uh, Austin anymore and they go through some of the other cities in Texas? 
Yeah, I don't know. It's it's weird. There was just always this like <laughs> in my head, like what you said. I would expect them to come to Austin because Austin is known for music. But um, like I said, maybe it's a venue issue thing. We now have the 360 Amphitheater, which is gigantic, kind of like a stadium um, size for the huge, huge names. But um, yeah, I don't I don't really know. It's kind of still a mystery. I haven't explored much. You know, this is an interesting topic because, you know, one of the questions I wanted to ask you right off the bat is really, it's really around your guitar playing. How did you start playing the guitar and uh, how how did that all start for you? Yeah, it started um, recently, last year, um, someone in Magic tweeted like, what was the best Christmas gift you've ever received that you didn't think would be important to you, you know, at first when you opened it, but ended up becoming like a really good gift? One of those things that you're like opening, but you're not thrilled about, and then it grows on you. Um, I think when I was like 11 years old, I got a package in the mail for Christmas for my grandmother, and it was a you know it was a children's size acoustic guitar, and I opened it and I was excited, but I knew nothing about guitar, and I had never actually like shown any interest in the guitar per se. Um, so it probably like lived in my room for a year or a year and a half until one day. My mom always had this rule when she cleaned the house on Saturdays. It was like, either you help or you get out of my way. So I didn't want to help. Um, And when I was younger, getting out of her way meant going outside and playing with all the kids on the street in the neighborhood. And And then in middle school, when I was 12 and 13 years old, it meant just staying inside my room. So I was in my room bored and I picked up the guitar and I found there was an instructional VHS in it. And that's really where I fell in love with the guitar, you know, because it's intimidating. This is like right before the internet was real, you know, was accessible. So without the internet, can you imagine learning a musical instrument from someone, you know, usually it'd be from someone that knows how to play it. Um, so yeah, it was that very fateful day, you know, and about a year after I received the guitar that I, uh, I learned how to tune it. I learned, uh, how to play a couple of chords. And then, um, I learned my first like Blink-182 song or whatever, like two or three weeks after that. And since then it's just been a staple in my life like more than anything else that's the most consistent hobby i participate in you know i'll oscillate with magic i'll oscillate with uh other interests the last year it's been chess um but guitar is always like an hour to a day at minimum for me so um yeah for people with like nervous tendencies or um or, or, or people that fidget a lot like I do. I, it's nice to have something in my hands when I think. You know, when people like get on the phone, they'll, they'll walk around their house, they'll pace. Or if you're trying to write something, I'm sure you go through the same processes uh, <laughs> for the guitar. The guitar is always like this toy that I get to play with to like flesh out my thoughts while I'm thinking them. So, um, so I, yeah, I mean, if I weren't holding this microphone, I'd probably hold, <laughs> be holding a guitar, you know? <laughs> It sounds like the guitar is something like noodling on the guitar or playing it is just, it helps you process things, uh, maybe other things going on in your life. Yeah. I mean, I mean, anybody that's involved in music knows how therapeutic it is and, and how it can bring you into a sort of spiritual realm or, um, really clear headspace or be really nostalgic. Uh, it can hit, it can hit those spots of being a human being that few other things can. So being able to participate with that is is it gets you one step closer to like the magic that is music and a lot of the musicians i follow they don't really know where it comes from either you know mm-hmm. uh i think <laughs> i think disney recently tried to figure that out with soul like where do where do songs come from it yeah from i just saw that movie too 
yeah, yeah this like mythical space the zone um the spaniards call it duende which is like when someone achieves duende they're in that zone um mm-hmm. it's yeah anybody that's involved with music i, I in fact <laughs> It's probably bad of me to say, but when I talk to people that don't care much about music or don't listen to music very much, I'm, I'm like, how do you, how do you, what something's do you do? missing, you right? Know? Yeah, yeah. There's like, what do you mean you don't like music? It's a universal, you know, love of food, love of, love of music has to be part of the the human spirit in some way. So, um, yeah. So music is music is always going to be the number one love um, mm. for me. I think. It's, it's part of being alive. And for me, it's kind of being, it's an inexplicable thing because not that I know how to play the guitar, but I, I've always loved music. Right. And I think some of my best experiences were going like some of the best concerts. And I, it's like, you, you go to a concert from 25 years ago or something. Like I remember like going to a Radiohead concert, like in Vancouver, Canada with my friend and they were playing Paranoid Android and it started raining, like literally raining during the, the performance. And it was just like, you, you don't forget those kind of things or, right. you know, you know what I mean? Right. Like it's just, oh, it's just totally. some kind of spiritual thing. It's like, yeah. 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 And you don't have to be a spiritual person to feel that. And um, I like the way music can kind of sneak up on you, especially in a concert setting, you know, and um and bring you to like a a bigger emotional moment and an unforgettable one too so um it's nice to be able to achieve that on a smaller scale without access to concerts and the guitar brings me closer to stuff like that you know if i'm noodling in my bedroom or i'm playing along to a song i love um you can still achieve that feeling which is uh really special and profound and like something i want to preserve so so yeah the 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 guitar will be a staple i think until i die it's very easy to say that (laughs) Did you have any other instruments uh, that you've tried to pick up along the way or try to learn or was the guitar, was, was that just it for you? Yeah, it was, um, it was the guitar first. And then the next Christmas I got a piano and um, the piano for me is uh, like a, a sad, like Chopin type pianist is my favorite sound and music in the world. By far, there's nothing that competes to just a singular, sad, melodic piano and um, if I could change all of my guitar skills into piano skills, I would. I still have a keyboard in my house. It's like, it's something that I'll always kind of fiddle around with, but never know how to play super well. Um, so yeah, I have a piano. And if you're learning music theory, they always say learn on a piano first, because visually it's so accessible to figure out music theory. Um, it teaches you a lot of dexterity with two hands. You know, it's a pathway to drumming because drumming needs that, you know, syncopated uh, muscle motor skills. Um, I play bass guitar too, but bass is like very, it's very synonymous with guitar. So, um, yeah. And I was in the orchestra <laughs> in in elementary school, you know, mm-hmm. I had, a, I had a violin in my hands for a couple of years, but mm-hmm. that's it. I've lived in the string world my whole life. No, no woodwinds, you know, no funky like theremin or anything. Um, a little right. bit of electronic music, but largely the guitar. So, Talk to me about how serious you are with the guitar. I mean, obviously it's part of your daily life and it's like uh, an extension. Like it's, it's like one of your limbs, right? But do you play like in a, in a band? Do you try to compose music? Like do you, or is it just more like kind of a recreational uh, way of life sort of thing? 
Yeah, it, I wish I had the discipline to sit down and record music. I'll write tons of riffs like all guitar players do and then forget them or they'll come back to me. Um, yeah, if I had the discipline that I do with like making videos, uh, with making music, I'm sure by now I would have made, <laughs> you know, albums per se. Um, no, I don't I don't play with the bands. I I know musicians in my periphery, but like musicians that to be to be in a band is a re I think also extremely special because you have to have a group of people that you like to spend time with and that you communicate with in a very abstract non-language way which is through music right and if your musical interests don't line up too well then that relationship can never really forge so I haven't been in too many scenarios in my life where I'm playing with another musician and I'm like I want to play music with you mm -hmm. often you know <laughs> usually jamming with someone on a guitar devolves into just blue scales and soloing and it's like i can only do that for so long right. um so yeah so like music for me is recreational um i don't take it seriously i would never want to become a musician per se um especially because i just don't have the discipline to sit down and record things and work on it and tinker with it um which is fine because it's nice to just have a hobby that you can like not have to take so seriously so right what about in terms of your guitar playing? Who are some of your biggest influences? Um, oh, for sure. Like Claudio Sanchez of Coed and Cambria is really the guy that taught me how to play uh, guitar in the way that I do. Um, Thomas Eric from The Fall of Troy. He's like this really, he's a drummer and he was a drummer that like had to learn how to play guitar and he sings and plays guitar. And anyone that has ever seen The Fall of Troy play, like he plays the guitar like the drums and he sings and uh it's very sporadic and wild looking and it doesn't make any sense um they're two of my top like guitar influences jimmy page it started with led zeppelin and like mm -hmm. um kiki downing and uh everyone from judas priest and like all the 80s hair metal bands but um i really like technical guitar lately it's been like uh uh mario camarena uh from chan has been there for like five or six years maybe longer um tim henson and polyphia is doing things on the guitar that is inventing new genres um there's so many guitar players that are doing just wild things with the instrument now especially through the internet like they're sharing ideas anything in the math rock subgenre is like turning the guitar inside out and upside down and people are now experimenting with tunings that have never happened before and capos and playing with two hands almost like a piano um but yeah, I exist very much in the math rock, prog rock realm in terms of my influences. But um, can but you like, define that? Because I was trying to look up Wikipedia for, you know, math rock, prog, art rock, and it, I, I'm still a little <laughs> bit confused as to what that is. And uh, I'll have I'm, to send you some. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to send you some resources because it's a de it's a tricky definition. Math rock is very much a sound. Um, Math rock is super interested in like weird time signatures. It's kind of a branch off of emo. So mm -hmm. if you hear like the most traditional math rock bands, um, you'll sense that it came out of the Midwest, very cold, angsty young teens that are making kind of happy sounding, happy, sad sounding music. Okay. Uh, I don't know how to, that's like, it's like a joyful, beautiful, crystalline type of guitar sounds, but is usually accompanied with wild drum techniques okay um there's a band out of japan that i really love that fits in the genre called toe uh, toe toe yeah toe there's a couple live performances that like 
I once commented on one of the toe shows like four years ago on YouTube. I said, this is a human energy collective because those guys are just all, like I was saying earlier, when you find someone that you're in sync with, everybody in that band is like mm. the closest knit group of humans and you can just tell when they perform. So if I had to recommend a math rock band to kind of get acquainted with the genre in a weird way, I think toe is always going to be my number one, especially because they come from Jap Japan and like, you know, in America, you you don't necessarily seek out uh, art or literature or whatever from outside of the States or Europe, uh, especially to get something from East Asia is like always right. a treat. So yeah. toe is a good segue if you'd like to find some, uh, some <laughs> East Asian, you know, math rock. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'll have to check that out. Just in terms of your guitar playing, how do you think this has influenced the way you make your, your magic videos or your creative work? Yeah, I... I think um, I was talking to Jeremy Knoll a couple of days ago. I was playing Commander with him on his stream and definitely in the editing se segments or the editing phase of my video making, that's when the musicianship kind of comes out because editing something is very, is very rhythmic. It's very methodical and it feels like I'm putting together a song. Um, I'll go back and rewatch one second of my video 15 times until all of the everything feels you know sync synchronized um and i think that's when i feel like i'm closest to music in terms of uh in terms of my my video production but that's also because there's music going on in the background and i want to make sure everything lines up nicely but um but yeah i think the way i feel when i'm listening to music i want people to feel that way when they watch something i'm making <laughs> you know i don't want it just to be informational i want it to kind of have a feeling and an aura to it you know i want it to feel like a uh, like a piece of art if you will even if i'm not you know even if i'm not making quote unquote art um yeah if in a way my music or my 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 videos are trying to bring some of like what i love about music into a visual space so um so i'd say it comes there it's it's very abstract of an answer but <laughs> i think that's where it lives I, I love to unpack that a little bit because i'm just thinking about like you know some of the best music i've listened to or live performances as we talked about i can sometimes get this emotional response from it but I can't exactly articulate it, which is why I, I call this spiritual, but it, it may not actually be spiritual. It's just like you're feeling something and you don't, sometimes my mind can't quite comprehend what that is. I'm curious, like when people watch your videos, have you ever had feedback where it's like, maybe it's like, I really enjoyed that video, but I don't exactly know why. Like, <laughs> uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely, I love comments in that realm akin to that not necessarily i don't know why usually people can point to something that they enjoyed the editing sure. or like my my voice one of the best comments that i get often is like you i i didn't expect to sit down and watch this video front to back but i couldn't stop you know mm -hmm. like 20 minutes front to back i never sit i have the attention span of a goldfish it's like 30 seconds for a video and then i turn it off or whatever so um, I think when people watch something front to back and they don't expect it and I can turn that 20 minute experience into something that feels like this, um, that's like, that to me is like bringing them into the, the flow of what it feels like to make a video like that. So, um, so yeah, that's a big comment that I love. I love when someone unexpectedly watches the whole thing front to back. Cause that really right. means I succeeded as an editor in terms of making it and a writer to make it like to make it flow in a nice 
you know, a nice way. So, yeah, it's really hard, right? Because I know not, not necessarily in making videos, but long form content, whether it's writing or podcasting, like it's very hard to get someone to commit to the end. And so when, when someone does, it's actually a very, um, uh, what's the word like gratifying sensation perhaps. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You, I feel so grateful anytime anyone chooses to spend X amount of time with anything I make, you know? Um, and then <laughs> the goofy comments in, in the similar vein, like the goofy comments of, uh, they're responding to something I say in the end credits, the last 30 seconds or right. whatever. It's like, not only did you watch the video, you watched my dumb credits monologue, you know? Mm. <laughs> it's like people stick around to the end end, not just the end per se. Yeah. Um, I think anyone, <laughs> I'm having flashbacks of like film school where they would make us sit in the dark and watch all the credits roll by before they turn on the lights and let us go, you know? <laughs> right. So do you consider yourself a perfectionist? Because you you mentioned, you know, maybe spending like an insane amount of time on that one second or that transition. Yeah, to to a fault. I kind of like, I was thinking about this on my drive today. I, was, I really like, um, th there's a, there was a tweet that, that turned into an image. I think I'll find it really quick. You might've seen it on my Twitter. I'll, I'll find it. It's in my pictures folder um, that responds pretty well to the perfectionist thing. This tweet, uh, this tweet touches on what I was thinking about in my car today, which is, I want shorter games with worse graphics made by people who are paid more to work less, and I'm not kidding. Um, that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of perfect, because I wish I wasn't such a perfectionist, because I like music and art that has a little bit of edges to it, that isn't so polished, you know? We're going through this really long phase in video games where everyone is trying to make the most hyper-realistic video game that's ever been made, you know? Mm. And... Um, at a certain point, you just kind of want something that's not that. You want the homemade feel. Um, and unfortunately, I suffer from this perfectionism because I want my videos to be polished. But like, I end up enjoying a lot when a video has a little bit of a, a rough edge to it, you know? Um, so <laughs> yeah, I'm a perfectionist to a fault. And I think any perfectionist, someone who cares about all the details will say that. Um, I wish I could turn that part of me off sometimes, you know? Right, right. So another thing that's interesting, you mentioned going to uh, film school. So tell me a bit about that, like your experiences with that. Yeah, I mean, I took a, I should rephrase that. I took a few film classes um, and I've studied film extensively on my own. Through my humanities degrees, I've looked at a lot of films and you kind of have to be well-versed in film language and how films are made. Um, but, you know, one of the, one of the many passion, passion projects I have is, is listening to directors kind of talk about their movies. And, uh, and yeah, like I, the, what I was talking about a second ago was just an intro to film studies class. I took my freshman year at, at the university of Colorado in Boulder. And there was this kind of typical film professor who would make us watch very abstract artsy films. Uh, a, a guy called Stan Brackish sticks out to me. If you've ever heard of Stan Brackish, um, weird stuff like you you sign up for that class because you want to watch like mission impossible you know and, <laughs> and like pulp fiction and he's like no nah, we're not gonna watch anything you're gonna like so um so he's a guy that i learned a ton from and the older i get the more i understand what he was trying to do and expose us to which is which was for our long-term benefit but in the short term it was like really hard to sit through some of those classes because 
you're living in the super experimental realm of filmmaking. Um, and yeah, he would make us <laughs> sit to the end of the credits because it was part of the film. Like he did not, he hated when Americans would get out, <laughs> stand up, you know, as the film credits roll. Uh, he's and, a, and he's a bit of a purist in that, in that sense. Oh, to, yes, to a T, a purist to a T. Yeah, he, he had like a... <laughs> He had long grubby hair and a brown leather jacket and, and walked into class like he didn't want to be there and he just accidentally stumbled in and mm-hmm. um, he kind of carried that persona with him, which made it more fun, I think. <laughs> so what kinds of uh, influences do you draw from film? Ah, geez. I, uh, film this is like is, an endless uh, question. I'm always putting yeah. you on the spot with here. <laughs> no, so. I know. It's, uh, it's like uh, a really good film. I, I, t- I tell my my girlfriend this all the time. I want to. Part of what I miss from COVID is being able to go to the theater because I love surrendering myself to whatever I'm going to witness and being in a contained space with the lights off. You you get to be somewhere else and be someone else for X amount of hours. You know, I love the escapism of film. And that's why I don't really care too much about like keeping track of the logistics of what's happening on screen. I just want to be somewhere else. So in much the same way that you go to a concert, I go and watch a movie and I want to like be in that world. Um, I think people in magic would, would understand that, that desire for escapism because it's so therapeutic sometimes. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm just endlessly inspired by, uh, by, intentional art and obviously mm-hmm. film is is part of that um my favorite director it's going to be too cliche is paul thomas anderson um you know who made boogie nights and he made there will be blood and uh yeah he made the master and he made the inherent vice movie right um but he, he made magnolia always, i was a big fan oh of my that. god thank you yeah he made magnolia which is a super long movie and people always criticize for it him for it but i just love his it's just perfect though, about, the music and everything you know it's god. just all integrated Dude, right the amy yeah, man talk about, stuff yeah t- talk about pacing you know he juggles like eight storylines and i'm always watching his movies for his pacing because right. he has such a good rhythm to his movies and his in his filmmaking so yeah um yeah i think it's part of the experience the human experience like we keep touching on is to to be enraptured by like watching movies so yeah. um and actually speaking of paul thomas anderson one of my favorite quotes from him is like God, I go to work and I work on these super dramatic, serious movies for 10 hours a day. And all I want to do is go home and kick my feet up and watch an Adam Sandler flick. You know, he just wants to clean his palate from the person that he is with just dumb comedy. Uh, And I find myself in the same realm. Like I wish so bad. That's why I just love when I watch a really funny YouTube video because I just wish I could be funny. You know, funny to me is the ultimate. Like if you're funny... I would give all of the, I take myself too seriously. And uh-huh. if I could just be funny, man, I, I would trade it all to be funny, you know? <laughs> just to have that superpower, right? Oh, it's a superpower. It really is. It's like singing. It's just. Uh. I sense there's also like a Sam who wants to make funnier videos somehow. I feel like there's a Sam who wants to just like create a video that's completely nuts, that has like no narration and just flash cuts for 30 minutes. The Ristic Studies, I'll call it the brand. Is that something that you consistently try to be consistent on? Or have you thought about like maybe experimenting a little bit and maybe just like riffing on something? Yeah, I would love to break out of my own conventions. You know, every time I start a new project, I'm like, 
this is going to be the one where I don't fall into my own traps. And then I always fall up and fall into my own traps. Uh, the reason the, the channel is consistent is because that's just kind of become how I think about what I'm doing and how I conceptualize topics and how I organize it um, and how I visualize it. Um, I think it's super hard for anyone that's making art of any sort of, uh, in any sort of way, in any sort of media um, to, to stop to to stop making it the way they know how to make it you know mm -hmm. the best artists are always the one that can take a hard right turn and make something totally different um musicians have a hard time with that they keep making the same album over and over and then they don't they stagnate and they don't go anywhere and it's you know they fall off the map it's the same with visual arts um i would love to do what you were saying and make a hard right turn maybe i will um but that's that's still on the plate for me to figure out how to do it well you know <laughs> yeah let me try to start from the beginning. I want to understand how you first began making videos. Maybe tell me about that and how the Magic Man Sam came about. I guess how you made videos came about first, but I, I love to kind of get the origin story, if you will. Yeah, the origin story is um, with anything I do, I tried, I just, I here's something I come back to often that could be a catchphrase of mine. Like if I was a Woody doll and you had a pull, and you had a pull string, one of the one of the catchphrases might be, I just want to be part of it, you know. And at the very beginning of Magic, I, I learned how to play and I started playing uh, with my roommates in college and before that, my cousin. And quickly, like weeks after I learned how to play the game, I just wanted to make videos so that I could be part of the bigger community, you know. Um, so that drove all of the stuff at the very beginning. It didn't matter if I was a good Magic player or if I knew a lot about Magic. I just wanted to be part of it. So... Um, so that's what started the Magic Man Sam, and in those those early years, like the first year of that, um, I was just making videos about what came to mind, and I had no real direction or style or whatever. But I I garnished a nice little audience because at that time, like there was no one on YouTube really. Magic on YouTube was binder trading, you know. There's a Give me an idea ones. for like what around what time that was, yeah. like maybe what set and of Magic or yeah, like around yeah. what year. Yep, um, it was 2013, I believe Theros just came out that year. Yeah, it was 2000, fall of 2013 was when I, um, excuse me, was when I made my first like two videos. Um, and yeah, that was Theros release. So the year before was Return to Ravnica block. So we had Return to Ravnica and Gate and Gate Crash and Dragon's Maze and then the core set and then Theros. And that's kind of when I started entering the YouTube scene. And like, like I said, at that time, um, the Manasaurus Wedge was making videos. Uh, There's a couple of other folks. The prof had made his first couple of videos, but he was really not what he is now. Um, yeah. And it was it was cool to be part of the very first wave. Um, earlier makers were like Chippy and uh, Milo the Gathering and um, Ranch. And there's so many names that like, it, it felt so much smaller than what it is now. Mm -hmm. um, and it was cool. Again, it was just so cool to be part of the first wave of like YouTube content creators or whatever. Like I wasn't even on Twitter at that time. Um, it was just through YouTube. So. so it felt like you were part of a movement because it was a new thing. Yeah, it was. And like, I don't know if anyone in even in 2012, 2011, could see the future of YouTube being a sustainable career or anything. It still felt like a hobby horse. It didn't feel like it could be a, a an actual line of work, and it didn't feel like it would be so big 
that it could be sustainable or in any sort of way. So um, it was also nice to ride that wave of early YouTube, which they were, I mean, the ad money was better, but it, mm. it still didn't feel like there was either an audience or an infrastructure or anything. And Magic also was like, think about Magic Design, think about we were still in the three block format, you know, or the three set block format, like magic design during that, those years was still not ready for like a digital age and younger players. It was still kind of nurturing what it used to be before that. So, um, so yeah, it just didn't seem like possible to be a magic personality cause they just, they, we didn't exist yet. So, <laughs> right. But even in those early days, like when you first picked up magic, was there something about there, there must have been something about the flavor or the themes that drew you in. I don't know. I didn't watch your initial uh, videos back then, but were they focused on those topics or did they evolve later? Yeah, it was. I definitely knew I didn't want to do something typical, quote unquote. Um, I wanted to look at art. Um, some of the earlier videos I was like doing, I was drawing my favorite cards. Um, I was looking at like lore. I was looking at... Uh, yeah, yeah, art to a very minimal degree. Um, but I wasn't really, I knew I wasn't going to be like the guy you asked for draft advice. You know, I wasn't right, looking at the right. strategy as much. It was very much on the Vortho side of things. So that's that's remained true since the beginning in terms of what I'm interested about the game. Um, but I knew early on I wanted to do something different. I didn't want to make gameplay videos and I didn't want to make spoiler videos or whatever. Uh, I wanted to do like... I just feel like there was this huge section of magic that was untapped, you know? Um, and I was a lot goofier back then too. Like <laughs> speaking of not taking myself too seriously, I definitely didn't take myself seriously in the earlier years. Um, and it was fun, but it wasn't, it wasn't what I wanted to do ultimately. So how did you like hone in on what you wanted to do? Was it like just inner reflection? Was it like community feedback or some combination or was it something else? No, community feedback was always really strong and fun. And like Magic has always been really kind to me. I know that's not the case for everyone, but Magic, like commenters on YouTube, my Twitter followers and feed has always been really positive and good. Um, and there's so many good people in Magic. I just keep finding more of them. Um, I know that's not the case for everyone, but like a mm. resounding high quality a high number of high quality people I found through magic. So even in the earlier days, it was like a lot of positive feedback. I kind of stumbled into my style because I started grad school and I started thinking more in the format of what you might consider an essay. Uh, I accidentally wrote a video that when I was done with it, I was like, oh, this could be a really cool format. And it was my first video on Snapcaster Mage just kind of looking at the history of Snapcaster Mage as a card. And it was the first like light bulb moment where I was like, oh my God, I could do this probably with any card in Magic where you right. just pick one out of a booster pack and find stories and articles and anecdotes about one specific card and go down the rabbit hole and find as much media that you can to that inter that interlaces around and surrounds this one card. So that was my light bulb Eureka moment. And it was because I was like, Again, I was my first semester of grad school. At the end of every semester, they have us write, you know, three 20 page essays or whatever. So you're very much in that headspace to kind of formulate an argument and find evidence and do research and, you know, and tidy it up and write it out. So, yeah, it, it started because of grad school, I'd say. That's great because that's exactly how I think life is is that life influences your creative work, right? There's no way that you do anything without 
I guess, again, like consciously or subconsciously referring to that. So that makes a lot of sense because like Ristic studies to me is like, I hate to generalize, but they're really well done video essays, right? They're really well done video essays. Like they've obviously been, there's great care in the, I guess you can call it storyboarding or outlining of it. Like uh, I remember when we first connected, I think it was because I interviewed Mike Turian and you wanted something about Jace the Mind Sculptor. And uh, I could tell that you're somebody who puts a lot of work into the research. I think that's uh, something that I think all YouTubers do, but uh, I think you're very you're very intentional with it, right? Yeah, it's a huge part of the process because I come to every video not knowing anything really. Like I know I know one percent of what I might want to say in the end, but like if I ever have an idea, it starts with a question and it starts with an idea and it starts with curiosity, but it doesn't start with a final project in any way. So I have to do a bunch of research because there are so many people in Magic that are way smarter than me, that know way more about the game, that play it way better. Basically, anytime I go to Vegas for the GP, I'm always around people that like really know Magic. And it's kind of intimidating because I've kind of got a reputation now of like knowing things about Magic. But I promise you, <laughs> there's so many people in Magic that know so much more. Maybe a little it's- bit of imposter syndrome. Kind of. It's just, so, but to me, I'm like, it's like a kid in the candy store because I get to right. hang out with these people that I can I can pick their mind about just about anything. And they're so excited, enthusiastic to tell me, um, which is why I try as best I can to find one or two people for every video to interview. Because similarly, like I could interview 10, 15, 20 people for every video and I know I would come away with a richer product. You know, I think it's foolish to think that I, I know everything about anything, right? Um, so the research stage for me is probably the most fun part of all of this all of it because it's you know it's going down the rabbit hole about something that initially caught your attention and you don't really know what's going to come out of it in the end it's not like i start the video knowing i'm going to say what i'm going to say it's like jace the mind sculptor why do why do we have the reaction we do when we hear that card you know like why why has that always been the card in magic like where did it start you know right um and and then you set out for like two or three weeks just gathering as much readings and audio clips and videos that you can about jace the mind sculptor and you come away with a fun little topic so and sometimes you just don't even know where these questions come from or like these inspirations come from because i I actually, as part of some research for this interview, I reached out to uh, Erin Campbell. And and basically, she told me that you asked her to do some voiceover work in one of your latest videos, just because you one day thought that her voice was like a good fit. And it's just like, where does that come from? Like, that's that's completely a creative decision, right? You just don't know sometimes where the Jace the Mind Sculptor question comes from. Yeah, I reached out to Erin Campbell because I've Similarly, I have like a hit list of people I want to work with so bad and I'm trying to find where they'll fit the best, you know. Okay. Uh, Bradley Rose is one of my favorite people in Magic that I met through Magic Twitter and I'm still trying to find a spot for him in one of my videos, for example. But I, I reached out to Aaron. I was like, I keep reading these quotes in your voice when I'm looking at this script. Like, you have to voice these, please. Yeah. And also because I knew she would have so much fun with it, uh, with the topic, because it was about like witchcraft and magic. Um and how like women in witchcraft have always been this like taboo subject. Uh, and to me, Erin has always been kind of a rebel. You know, she has this fun graveyard persona, this dredge queen attitude. And uh, it's like, yeah. she she has to be in the Halloween video. Like I love her voice, her voice I could listen to for hours. 
and I just want it to be part of my if I could get that that's like that's like the 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 crowning achievement of that video was just getting Aaron to narrate <laughs> you know for me at least uh, yeah. and I think people that heard their her voice on on the video enjoyed it just as much as I did so it felt like a oh yeah it felt like absolutely. a perfect I fit. love Aaron and, and it's like capturing lightning in a bottle when you have that opportunity you gotta just go for it oh yeah oh my gosh yeah so I I really want to find ways to work with her more because I think she's just brilliant anyway it almost felt like an introductory project like hey if you voice this, we can do this, but I really want to do a real video with you too. Like I want to pick your mind about things, you know? Yeah. So what's something that Sam now would maybe tell Sam when he first started Ristic Studies? Like just, is there anything that you would do differently or things that you would learn now in 2021 that maybe you could have applied back then? Of course, we all have to make mistakes and learn, but it's just a question. Yeah, yeah, I don't think so. Um, I, I this is part of me feeling fortunate. I haven't had uh, like a misstep, a severe misstep in any way. Um, one of my favorite musicians in one of his interviews um, said the process is the point, and that kind of stuck with me. Um, it's not the getting, or it's not the having. You know, it's the it's the getting. Um, and I think that every time I finish a project, I'll learn something new that'll apply to the future project, but it would be remiss to think that I would have learned it if I hadn't done the project. So if I told myself, uh, Sam, your, your videos are gonna do well, obviously that would be nice to hear, but like, I don't think I could give myself any practical advice because I've kind of learned all of the advice by just doing it. And I know that if I just do it, I'm gonna learn something new, so. Right. Um, so that's always been the approach and the ethos and like the attitude is like, yeah, you just gotta, you gotta do it. The process is the point. The process is the part that feels the best. It always feels so good to put a, a video together. It doesn't feel that good to watch it. Cause once it's, you know, once it's done, it's out of my head, it's been exercised, it's gone. Right. It's in the, it's no longer mine. You put it on the internet and it's no longer yours. No matter what you think or say, it doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs uh -huh. to everyone else, you know? I was thinking of that documentary with George Lucas. That's the people versus George Lucas. You know, mm -hmm. he made Star Wars, but then Star Wars became an an IP of of. It took on a of, life of its own. Once it's yeah. out there, it's it's out there. Totally, totally. So you keep that in mind when you make anything. It's like this is yours for now, and then once people see it, it's no longer yours. But um, but the process is absolutely the point. And the the process is the point, but the process is also potentially very painful and stressful, right? Because I wouldn't, I, I can just infer maybe when you're making your videos, like you can obsess over them while you're doing it. It becomes like, uh, if you think of a rhino, it's almost like this, this thing that's living in front of your head. It's almost like a horn growing out the front of my forehead. It's all I can think about, you know, and it's always there. It's persistently there. Um, kind of the downside of making a 10 minute video is like I've stressed about this for two months and you get to watch it and be done with it for 10 minutes like envy you you know yes. uh, yeah it, it lives with you it's like and that's why I have to do it because until it's done it'll it'll like it'll wear on me I'm kind of at that point in the dissertation like I'm trying to finish this two year long project and all I want is that finality that comes with it you know the release of having finished it um, because it's all you can think about it's like it's a little cloud, you know? Um, so yeah, that's, that's how videos feel too. Uh, you, you have to, you have to do it. Otherwise it'll live with you. And 
it won't let you rest. It won't let you not do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's how videos for me get made. It's just because I can't not do it. That's that's always the best reason. And you wouldn't tell yourself anything differently because if you tell yourself that, Sam, you're going to be successful, that might actually like take the edge off you wanting to push to get these videos made, right? You might just become complacent. But mm-hmm. what are some of the things over the years that you've gotten better at? Maybe like in a technical sense or in a in a storyboarding or like anything that comes to mind yeah um the first is like especially when i listen to my earlier videos is to kind of don't be too emo about it if, if you want to take <laughs> away one just don't be too emo like maybe you were more earlier. emo back then that's that's fine right? yeah i was yeah i know but i don't want to be too emo i don't want to take it too too seriously like just a little bit you know you're allowed to have fun with it and be playful um, as far as technical stuff goes, um, I haven't, luckily I have never partially because I'm so thorough with what I do. I've never run into a scenario where I lose an entire project. You know, I have an et- external hard drive where I save everything as I go. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't think anything technically I would change or tell myself to do now. Um, because the workflow has kind of always been the same and I've, and I've found a faster workflow just by by doing it but um no i don't i really don't think there'd be anything i would change uh i might be able to find a better answer for you by the end of this but no i i i really can't give myself my previous self any sort of advice no sure i I guess big picture macro stuff that doesn't really change maybe you found like some optimizations like okay i can like load this thing faster or whatever but that's not really the the spirit of the question anyway so no yeah it's definitely not i'm trying i'm not i'm being efficient but that's not my goal you know it's definitely not my goal the the other thing that i'm intensely curious about and i just have to ask you're very anti youtube and that's actually one of the things that stands out to me perhaps the most you know you take a long time to create videos you're definitely a quality over quantity person and i just want to kind of dig into that like how did you develop that ethos because i know like on youtube it's it's way more beneficial to just create a crank out a video every every two days and to make your 20 minute video into like 10 two minute videos right so i'm curious how you came about that and and you know what is it within you that sort of it's not like you set out to be anti-youtube but like how do you have such strong conviction in like what you do when there are like market forces that may incentivize you to do differently yeah, the market forces are real. I don't I'm 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 operating from a very privileged position for a couple of reasons. The first is the format of what I'm trying to do is it allows me to behave the way I do. If I were trying to do news or whatever, I wouldn't be able to do you know, a 20-minute video once every 2 months. Um, but another thing is like I don't have to do this as my full-time job, so I I don't have to think of just the market influences. For me, this has never been about the money because if it was, I would be doing something else. It's one of those like, <laughs> it's very glaringly, if it was about the money, I would not do this. Um, so once you put that aside, sure, I could optimize where I place my ads. I could get more brand sponsors. I could kind of obey the algorithm desires to put out more videos. I can become a, a, a persona, if you will, and be bound to like what a YouTuber means. You know, if you had to quick sketch a YouTuber, it's like, really bad thumbnails, rhetorical clickbait questions, and videos that are largely the you same You start off every by, day. by a selfie shouting into the camera and your video titles have to be all caps and lots of exclamation marks. 
Precisely. And that's always disgusted me, but it's also something I don't watch myself. So I would never want to make that, right? Um, so two things. The first is respect. Uh, I have I have a big respect, like I was saying earlier, for anyone who spends time with my work. And if I can get them to feel like they spent their time well with what I did, then that's a huge achievement. And that means a lot to me. And if I can, if, if I spend you know, like we're going to talk about this, a hundred hours on something and turn it into 10 minutes, then I want that 10 minutes to feel very rich and very well spent for my viewers. And you can, you can betray your viewership if you lean into what YouTube wants. I've seen this with a couple of creators that I enjoy, who I watch for their well-polished stuff that try to like shift into the make five videos a week realm and the quality goes down and then they're disres- disrespecting their viewership because they're throwing a bunch of ads and sponsors. And it's like, what are you doing? You've lost, you've sold out. Like if you want to think about bands, you know, bands speak <laughs> for a second. Like it's that punk band that wants to make music for the music, man. If you think about School yeah. of Rock, Jack Black was like, you don't sell out to the man, right? Um, right, right. So, so it's a question of respect for like myself, but also whoever watches the videos. The other thing is... Um, there's one of my absolute favorite videos to link when people ask about how to quote unquote make it or whatever on YouTube is a, is a video from 2014 from a guy called Mike Falzone who was doing a really cool series on his channel back in the day before he became more of a podcaster um, where he would just take his camera and go on a walk and talk about something. You know, it was like primitive, primitive form of podcasting, but they would only be like four or five minutes long. This video in particular was um, was about uh, how to how to build something that means something to you, like how to. It's called stop being or stop begging to be liked on the internet. And one of the takeaways from that video is very much like we're not going anywhere. Like, what's the rush? Like, why do you feel like you got to put something out on Saturday? Who do you think is sitting there at their computer twiddling their thumbs, hoping to God that you? make your video about what just happened or whatever um people hit one of his taglines in that video is like people that are on the internet yesterday are going to be on the internet tomorrow and um it's just still true even for magic you know magic has like a fast-paced element to it with a bunch of sets releasing all the time um people that have been around in magic in 2015 are probably still here so right there's really no rush. You have way more time than you think you do. It's not like the internet's disappearing tomorrow. So right. um, so I use those words as like, I really took them to heart. That whole video I took to heart, and I think it's a big reason for my success as like, as a creative person. And I, and I again, I love linking it because it's just good advice. Um, but yeah, one of the takeaways was like, you should just make things that you're proud of, mm-hmm. that that aren't constrained to some weird schedule, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. we're going to be here tomorrow and we're going to be here a year from now. I guarantee it, you know, in 2023, you can listen to this podcast again. And right. um, because you took time to make it at your own time and you edited it well, it's going to be enjoyable in two years. So um, yeah. that's yeah. that's always been the case for me. And I think that's an area that we we share is that we both do this as a part-time thing. We're not relying on it for our, our income. And I, and I do understand if you're doing it for that, then it can obviously be much harder and you have to calibrate it differently. But given that we're in this position, 
we both try to make content that is, for lack of a better term, like evergreen, right? Like if someone listens to this podcast, it doesn't have to be tied into the month of January 2021. If they listen, if they watch your uh, season of the witch video or Black Lotus video, they could watch it a year later. They could have watched it a year before. It, it's fine. It stands on its own. So I think that's the kind of content that I enjoy. And that's also why I want to make that kind of content. So it sounds like you're in a, uh, perhaps a similar boat. Yeah, the evergreen word is perfect because if I'm going to spend all this time on something, I don't want it to be digested so fast. I want it to be relevant a year from now, you know? You stay relevant not by responding to the latest trend or controversy. You stay relevant by making stuff that's timeless. And my favorite pieces of work are always going to be in that realm. So, yeah, it's just like you're drawing on your inspirations. The thing you like watching is the thing you should be making. You know, it wouldn't make sense for me to be watching the the fast food digested stuff, you know, the YouTube stuff, quote unquote. Yeah. Now there are some really good like uh, vlogs and things like that, that are really well done. Like for example, I'm a huge fan of Casey Neistat. Like he does the the daily stuff, but that guy is like, here's the other thing about content and life in general that I, that I've learned over the years too, is that there's the top 1% that does everything extremely well. But if you don't, if you don't do it at that level, then you can't think that you can just do the exactly the same motions and get to the same result. It's like everyone out there is trying to be a KC Neistat. There's probably someone out there trying to be a Ristic Studies, but if you don't put in the same amount of dedication and care, or you don't actually enjoy it, then it just sort of falls apart after a little while, right? Yeah, big time. I saw someone in the running community a, a year or two ago tried to pivot and do the KC Neistat thing. Casey, two things. Casey is like in the realm of Mark Rosewater, Gavin Verhey, these names of workaholics who squeeze the most out of their day in ways that are inhuman. Like The man he, doesn't sleep. Yeah. He, right. It's like, and if he does, he sleeps exactly as much as he wants to and needs to. And that's it. There's yeah. no, you know. And Casey, the other thing about Casey's videos, especially when he was doing daily vlog for a couple of years, he was living a life that none of us live too. And that's what made part of it so fun is like he was such a social dude and he was living in such a fun spot in New York. Like none of those videos would make sense in Boise, Idaho, you know, right? or or whatever. Like it was because he was in New York living a, a big life and it was a life he made for himself. Um, but he was so personable and and then the craft on top of it, like you were saying, that 1%, he has a talent of storytelling and he has a talent of editing. Uh, he's someone I admire for something I was saying earlier of just like the rough edges thing. His stuff isn't polished, but it has such, it's very intentional. It's very good, you know? Um, yeah, like you can't be Casey Neistat. So stop trying to be Casey Neistat. You don't live his life and you're not yeah. him. Like, what are you doing? You know? You have to be yourself. You have to find your own, uh, your own style, right? always yeah. always always yeah so while we're on this topic of the your video work i let's let's just go into it um you know one of your favorite maxims is and i'll quote this is meant to be enigmatic right churn 100 hours into 10 minutes let me say that again so churn 100 hours into 10 minutes so you've when you've mentioned this in the past you've you wanted it to be left to the reader uh, or the viewer to their own interpretation. I interpret it in a certain way and I wanted to, I guess we can do this two ways. You can either just tell me the secret of like how you, how you actually, uh, what you actually mean by that, turn a hundred hours into 10 minutes, or I can tell you 
my view and maybe you can like critique it or or respond to it <laughs> no it shouldn't be critiqued at all it's a maxim for myself but i would love to hear what you have to say about it because you you obviously responded to this and maybe we have some overlap but um i'm curious because i didn't think anyone was listening to me when i said that but i really mean it when i say it and it's a real it's like a north star for me in terms of what i do so i would love to hear your interpretation first if we can start there okay so my interpretation is because uh, we're talking about turning 100 hours into 10 minutes. <laughs> There's, I guess my level one interpretation is if I look at your videos, the videos are 20 minutes, but obviously they took an order of magnitude longer to, to actually make, right? So I'm, my first level interpretation is that for anything you're putting out there into the world, like content or any creative work, spend way more amount way more time to make it than the actual thing like for example a song ends up being three minutes but obviously it didn't take three minutes to write and compose the song it, it took like you know 10 15 re-edits rewrites uh agonizing like through the night over what that hook should be the lyrics for the video like uh it's the same thing so to me, it's sort of like a, a, a rule of thumb or a guideline to be like anything you're releasing publicly, make sure you go way above and beyond in terms of the preparation and the work and the pre-work and everything around it. Like you, it has to be perfect in your mind just so that it's even acceptable to the outside world. And and I'm, I'm deducing this because there's another thing that you said. Uh, I didn't actually have this in my outline, but it was something like if someone pays you for like X amount of work, like beat their expectation. I don't, I'm paraphrasing, but it's like, if they paid you for like $10 of work, deliver $20 of work, right? Value. So that's how I'm interpreting it is just like everything that you do that goes out into the world is hard. And if you half-ass it, it's just never even going to be good enough because it has to be like 10 times perfect in your mind first, just to be palatable to the general public yeah that's that's precisely how i i mean you do you deduce perfectly for kind of the ethos of what i want to do um and it helps following that rule for myself has made me uh better as a creator to to make work that is evergreen um I'll give you an example. When I was making the frames video, I saw after I wrote the script that it was going to be like a 50 minute video, you know? And what that meant for me was like either I spend two or three more weeks than I intended to edit it to put all of the care in the world into editing it because at that time I was making like five to 10 minute videos and suddenly this 50 minute monster comes through me and I'm like, I have to write this, I have to make it and I record it and it's 50 minutes long. I had a choice when I was the first day I sat down to edit it, I had a choice. I was like, am I really going to put all of my usual care and attention into making this video beautiful, like uh, visually, the, the, the literal editing? Or am I going to turn it into more of a podcast where I have a still image on a background for 10 minutes and then I switch it when I'm talking about a new frame and then mm -hmm. I switch it again and the editing takes 10 minutes or whatever. Um, yeah, my first day editing it, I was like, I have to, I have to, I'm going to have to do way more work than I thought I would. And I'm so glad I did because now it's become, it's become a totally different thing. And it's because I turned all of that to extra time into something presentable. So, um, 
yeah, the 100 hours into 10 minutes, again, goes back to respect too, because like how delightful it is when you stumble upon something that took so long to make in, in such a fast, in such a fast food world, not just food, but like everything is fast food, uh, constant refresh of, of social media feeds and like really quick work. Uh, it's so refreshing to stumble upon something that you can tell took a long time. Um, and there's a lot of art and, um, and there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot to be said about a discipline because a discipline kind of wants that, wants mm -hmm. that attitude and mentality. And maybe we are drifting away from the old disciplines, but like the older I get, the more interested I am in uh, martial arts, for example, or, uh, mm -hmm. or cooking, you know, cooking can be a discipline and uh, cooking requires that of you. Um, so yeah, so the hundred hours into 10 minutes is like, if you want to make something good, it's really hard to spend a hundred hours on it and it suck. So, so that's just also a baseline to like maybe make yeah. something good. But you, yeah. do you have another, you have another uh, experience I have, with this I, with I IT, another, right? I, well, I have another, it's not strictly IT or tech related, but it's just like how I do things too is like, and I'm sensing this in your answer. Less is more, right? So I, I think I'm interpreting 100 hours in 10 minutes as in like, you probably need to spend 100 hours to make 10 minutes of work. But it could also just mean like, you have 100 hours of things you want to say, but just try to say it in 10 minutes. Because Ooh. like one of the things that I that I have, that's constantly an issue for me, because I, I like I enjoy writing. Like, for example, I write, you know, long pieces that maybe two of my friends read, but I, I still do them. And I think there's this kind of self-editing that I think is very important for life. It's kind of like your first draft of your essay is, or video essay or outline, like you said, it's going to be like, it's a 50 minute video, but then you should like sleep on it. And then the next day you should think about how do I make this into 20 minutes? And then the next day, maybe how do I make it into two minutes? Because really in the world, like less is more. And it's like pragmatic in the sense that people don't have that attention span to watch a 50 minute video unless you're Sam Ristic Studies or you're like ContraPoints or you're like some kind of amazingly produced YouTube thing. Actually, one of my friends is asking me, so I did this, like, I wrote this very long blog post and I shared a lot about personal selves with myself. And she was saying like, James, how do you have the courage to, to, um, to say all this personal stuff? Like, I want to share my personal stuff too, but I'm afraid of like how it will be interpreted. And I, and I told her like, don't worry because look, this is how it works. Like, this is like a funnel, right? You write this thing, you send it to 100 people, 10 people are going to read it, are going to click on the link. And then of the 10 people, maybe two people are going to like read halfway. And in the end, you're going to have one person that read the full way and actually read to that point that you're so worried about. So like, just put your heart into it, but just understand that everyone has short attention spans and they're not going to, people are not concerned about what James is, uh, sharing like they're everything they read is also a reflection or watch is a reflection of themselves right so and and she was like yeah maybe i'll try that uh you know because it it kind of goes back to maybe this is a this is also like a cynic in me is like don't expect people to spend that much time like watching your video or reading your thing and completely doing it in a vacuum where they do from start to finish and analyze it critically you just have to get it mostly right but what that means is that to get it mostly right, you have to have it short enough so that people even have a chance to engage with it. So that's another 
very, very long-winded interpretation of what you what you have. It, yeah, that's true, and that's a pragmatic one too. Uh, I love I love that you brought that up because uh, it reminds me of what Bohr has said when he was writing fictions. You know, fictions is his like masterpiece of short stories. He was always like, "I'm ri- I'm trying to write the sh- the short story version of a long book that I imagine someone else has written." Uh, and that's where his mat, like that process and that way to approach writing is like, to me was so enlightening to hear him say that. And he said it in much better words. Um, but you and I probably struggle with being succinct <laughs> and it could be, a, it could be a pragmatic thing to keep in the back of my head too. If I, like I was saying earlier, like if I could trade my seriousness for comedy, I would. And if I could trade 20 minutes for two minutes, to yeah. be funny and succinct, what a what a that's a superpower, you know. <laughs> that is a true superpower. Yeah. Um, but but similarly, like actually, for the one person that makes it to the end of your blog post and feels seen and feels like you you sharing a personal side of you, what meant the world to them. Um, I've been that person on the receiving end. Like, do do a video because you think eighty percent of the people will like it, but also do a video for your number one ideal watcher and viewer and experience you know because there's nothing better than like putting on a song and feeling like it was written for you and you alone you know because it hits all of the right spots or watching a film and you know that happens with some of the artsier stuff i watch like i'll be the only one in the theater that feels like i got it and i understood and i see who made it you know i see you who made it um So yeah, you can imagine an ideal audience member and just do it for that one person that is going to be moved by what you have to say, you know? Right. So hopefully my hypothesis about your your mantra is like somewhat, or maxim is like somewhat there. Uh, yeah, Of course, like you said, there's no, there. there's no right answer, but it's just how no. I interpret it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Just be intentional and have a work ethic, you know? Yeah. And the thing that ties to my work in software is that I, I, I also have this feeling, at least like when I when I work on stuff, like what, even when I was uh, working on the humans and magic book, like sometimes it's just good enough to, to be good enough. Like it, it, I have to fight the perfectionism because I struggle with that. You know, like I, I struggle myself. I have to set deadlines for myself to get things out because I understand that, especially with software and things like that, like there's always going to be bugs. So you cannot expect things to be hundred percent and you just have to adjust quickly. The question to you is, uh, do you have that sort of pressure for yourself as well like do you how, how do you work like do you create deadlines for yourself do you do you just like say i'm only going to release it when it's good enough what's your process around that yeah for me the way it's it's almost out of my control uh in the way that like i can't rest until my work is done i very much a work first play later my, i grew up with that that was the, always like i can i think of my, i probably attribute that to my mother's teachings you know I had to clean my room before I could enjoy myself. For me, like, I just can't sit still and I can't rest well unless what I have to do is done. So the way I negotiate that, like I said, is almost out of my control. I will release it when I'm done with it, but I won't feel good until it's done. So that kind of drives me to the end of the deadline thing. Um, but you're, you're saying good enough is good enough. I It reminds me of for six years, I worked at a summer camp and the owner and director of the summer camp every year, you know, the week before he expected the health inspector to show up is like, hey, 
Give them something super easy to critique because we can be perfect and they still have to walk away with a report and suggestions on how to be better. Mm -hmm. So no matter what, even if we were 10 out of 10 on all of their guidelines and even if this whole building top to bottom had been dusted and cleaned the day before they walked in, they're still going to find something to point out. So give them something to point out, you know. And it was a great way for me. I mean, being around him was helpful for my perfectionist to like just chill out for a second because he was very much like that. Like he he wanted things high and tight and it was a really good operation. But he also understood that like no matter what, I think it's probably becoming, you know, a father and having a bunch of kids. He he understood that there's no such thing as that, that you know, pie in the sky perfect. Uh, you can be good enough and that is good enough too, you know? Yeah. So what does the future look like for your your magic projects for Ristic Studies? Uh, yeah. Any, any ideas what you want to do this year? Yeah, I just, uh, I wish I could tell everyone that's asking for videos is like, ah, I got to finish this dissertation. Once that's mm-hmm. done, I feel like I can, I can go on a rampage again. Yeah. Um, I need first things creative first. projects. Yeah. yeah, first things first, but I need creative projects just to feel like, <laughs> to, you know, as outlets and to feel complete i need to be doing something on the side that's creative so it's killing me that i can't make videos but um yeah the the rest of this year assuming i finish on time with the dissertation is like i want to make a couple more videos i want to make a world studies on call time i this world is awesome i just want to i want to study it in the way i did with theros and ravnica i want to do a couple more artist videos there's a couple of really fun conceptual stuff that I want to do with um, with the card study series. Uh, ideally, it probably won't happen a Vegas trip, but um, but yeah, the rest of the year looks way more fun for me than the first few months. So mm-hmm. um, the the second I'm done with the dissertation, I'm gonna start working on a big magic project. I know it, and it's gonna feel awesome to just concentrate on something creative for a second, you know. So expect, it's like almost like expect more things eventually, but that's really where I am right Right. now. (laughs) No, that's, that's a completely fair answer. I love that. Uh, And uh, is it okay, Sam, if we, if we close it with like some uh, community submitted questions, like you can spend as short or as long as you want on these, but I just thought, you know, people have asked and I'm interested in some of them. So I've curated them. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Number one, which video was your favorite to create and why? I think the structures of Ravnica was my favorite because I got to speak with an architect that also played magic and he informed so much about what that video ended up. I learned so much from him. And then like we made that video and then in Vegas, we got to go out and party together. And that was just a blast too. Um, And then the second video is the commander 2016 or whatever, 2017, 18 preview video that I did for Thanos because I got to turn that into a song. So that was like my favorite video to make because it was so different than what I normally do. So those <laughs> those two videos stick out for me. That was your uh, Buffy musical moment. I'm not sure if you, you watched Buffy um, the Vampire Slayer, but uh, it, it was like they have one episode where it was like different from all the other ones. It was like an actual musical, but... Uh, yes. Sorry. Very, Precisely very that. That's That was my musical moment for sure. <laughs> okay. Do you have any rituals when putting content together, just in terms of music or the music you listen to, the environment you're in, or other factors? I think the ritual is um, it. It becomes real for me when I open the Word document. Like that is the threshold moment for me, and I love 
waking up and knowing it's the day that I get to open the Word document because that's the moment where like this tan this intangible idea in my head becomes like focused and directed and it just starts with me clicking notepad and clicking save on whatever I think the project name is going to be and um, that to me is like my favorite quote-unquote ritual but otherwise I don't have like other than just like drinking coffee and pacing you know manically around my apartment there's nothing <laughs> there's nothing specifically like I don't set out a bunch of books and and whatnot. Yeah, um, yeah there's nothing like that. But the the <laughs> open the word document is the, my favorite part for sure. You mentioned one of your fav- the favorite parts of your creative process in, in creating the video being the uh, research. So, what is your least favorite part of the creative process and the creating the lifetime of the video? Yeah, the my least favorite part is making the end credits because technically it's a pain in the ass to have to download the, script, the <laughs> to download the Excel sheet from Patreon. It's a mess. And then plugging in names and oh, I'm grateful for all these people, but that's just the worst actual part. And then conceptually, it's like the worst part of the video making experience is about 30% of the way into editing when I can see the end. And then it becomes just a chore because all of the curiosity has been satisfied. I know what the final project is going to look like. I know what it's going to be, it, what it's going to be, and it's already out of my system. But I still have to go through the mechanics of putting it together and promoting <laughs> it. That's my least favorite part too. Is because I'm always excited for the next thing, and then I right. still have to finish this damn thing. You know, <laughs> right. if I could stop about thirty percent of the way through editing, I would every time because yeah. that's after that becomes just mechanical so what 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 if it was a like this perfect world where you had like unlimited budget and you could just hand it over to an editor would you feel okay with it at that point in time or would you still be like i want control of this thing and edit it myself i can't imagine handing it over to anyone at any point in the time i would have to be like a clone of me you know okay okay <laughs> and like that's you have probably to have mind melded with that person to, precisely but okay. at the same time i bet i could benefit so much from an extra couple of hands or minds anyway through that process you know i definitely feel like it could just be so much better if i had another person or two um but that would take a lot of like <laughs> relinquishing of control that i'm not ready for yet <laughs> got it got it okay next question MTG Creative lets you pitch a new plane, a new plane based on flavor or mechanical identity. What's your pitch? Yeah, I think we need to go to space. I've been saying this for a couple of years, but any sort of weird, wacky sci-fi. Can you imagine a magic set that looks like the covers of 80s sci-fi novels? I would be over the moon about that, you know? Mm. And I know we've kind of done that with... Uh, maybe the Eldrazi, they're kind of cosmic in a way, but they still mm. feel very organic and grounded. I want something that looks like the cover of Dune <laughs> on Magic <laughs> Cards. Because now we're at that point, especially with showcase stuff, where you can do that. There's been right. so much art art direction-wise in the showcase worlds. You get comic book styles, you get wacky concepts, abstract art that you don't see normally within the constraints of normal design. So right. I think like showcase artwork in a space set would be so sweet um yeah like 80s sci-fi this the sci-fi world like uh i'm just wondering if it's uh like i don't know why but i'm thinking of this like martian theme and like these different planets as well like so it's not just it's not just a 
cyberpunk, but it's like it's not just like, but actually, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe that's not what you're getting at, but it's like no, yeah. it is. It's not super cyberpunk and dystopian and futuristic. It's more of like imagine fantasy through the planets, and we have access to vehicles now because we have car type vehicle, and the vehicles are spaceships and uh, yeah, and then there's some conflict between the planets, like clans of Tarkir style, but on planets you know i think it could work in magic and uh it would almost open their way for a purple magic or a purple mana symbol for a little bit too i think there's some there's some space there i think uh we don't have to be so medieval fantasy you know we can be science fantasy too so yeah excellent what is your ideal guilty pleasure movie I don't know if this is like a specific movie or a type of movie. Um, I do love a really good rom-com. Recently, we watched Seth Rogen's maybe latest movie with uh, Charlize Theron called The Long Shot. We watched that last Saturday, and it was my choice to watch it. So mm -hmm. <laughs> When Harry Met Sally is like my absolute favorite rom-com, and I think everyone says that. But I'm just a sucker for like any movie set in New York or Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what the plot is. I'll watch any movie set in the, one of those two spaces. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Guilty Pleasure movie is like a rom-com in New York or like a heist movie in Vegas or whatever. <laughs> this question is uh, a little bit stereotypical, but I I'm going to assume that you're of Italian heritage. So, uh, favorite pasta dish? Oh, geez. Um, recently, we've been making a super good... We make uh, handmade pasta... We've, we started making it. Um, my girlfriend's mom gave us a pasta machine, you know, a hand crank pasta machine. So we've been making hand handmade pasta all year long and it's become our passion. So recently we've been making um, an egg noodle. That's a, it's, it's basically a tagliatelle. It's like a little wider and we do a tomato and lemon juice and capers sauce with it. And it's really tangy and salty and briny a little bit from the capers and every time we make it we just feel like so warm and good mm -hmm. um and it's not like a and there's a there's shallots in it too so there's a bit of a crunch with the shallots it's phenomenal we could eat it probably five times a week and never get sick of it so yeah this like lemon pasta thing we've been making has been just perfect so have you have you shared that on social or is or is like ristic studies cuisine not 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 in the, uh, <laughs> not in the not not in the guide. Not not yet, but who knows? Like, I just got a text from my girlfriend 12 minutes ago about her wanting to make a lifestyle channel on YouTube or a cooking channel on YouTube, you know, because she's an excellent baker. So <laughs> that could be just another of my many side projects. Who knows? But I got to get good first. I can't just be making these crappy, <laughs> these crappy dishes on YouTube, you know. <laughs> That's the, uh, the perfectionist in you speaking, right? Yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sam. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I I felt like we we went in a different in a couple different directions, but it was really just amazing for me just to get a sense for like who you are and your creative process. And uh, yeah, I I wish you you know all the best for this year. I know we we're just getting started. I hope to, I wish you all the best with your dissertation and your academic endeavors. And uh, yeah, I uh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, James. I've been very honored to 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 be on your show, and uh, I look forward to our episode. And uh, um, 
I just, yeah, I feel honored that somebody would want to let me talk for an hour and a half unhinged like this on a microphone. But uh, nonetheless, it's been awesome to talk to you. Thank you. Well, unhinged is always the best. So uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, all the best, Sam. You know, yeah. in this unstable world of ours, it's, it's okay <laughs> to be unhinged. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Humans and Magic. To get more information about the show and to join the mailing list, please visit humansandmagic.com. And don't forget, the Humans and Magic book is now available on Amazon for both paperback and Kindle. We'll see you next time.